Thanks, guys, and thanks for shuffling forward, too. It's nice. Um, so this morning, it is my pleasure to be leading us in this next little bit of Paul's letter to the Colossians. I don't know about you, but if I were to get a letter through the post, like rip it open and pull the letters out, I'd be like, oh, it's a, it's a few pages. Pretty certain I wouldn't go, I'm going to go for the third page, and I'm going to read this chunk here. Probably got the general gist and fling it on the, on the side. So I really encourage you, this is a letter to a group of people. It's a letter also to us. If you've been missing some of the other preachers that have gone before this one in this series, do go back, listen again. But I guess my biggest request is go away and read it. Read the whole letter. It's only four chapters, um, but it's just full of such treasure. And that's why we're slowly working through it on a Sunday morning together. Um, today, we have pretty much hit the halfway mark. We are in Colossians chapter 2, um, and we are reading from verses 16 to 23, but it's going to come up on the screen behind me. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Hold up. Bible reading basics. When there's a therefore, we need to ask what it's there for. So let's just skip back a tiny, tiny bit so that we get the context for this passage that we're looking at today so we can really understand it well. Just going back to verse 13, it says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgives us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul wants you to know this before we get to today's passage, that you've been accepted by what Jesus has done for you. You're alive in Christ. He's cancelled out your sins. He's taken them away, nailing them to the cross. Jesus has disarmed all the other authorities that might want to speak over you, and he alone has the victory. Right then, passage for today. Therefore, keep this in mind, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Heavenly Father, I pray as we open up your word together this morning, 
We pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to our hearts? Would you come and fill us afresh? Would you lead us and direct us? Would you give us hearts that are tender to your gentle challenge and encouragement? We pray, Lord, that anything that is just of me, Lord, just blow those things away on the wind, but the stuff that is of you, grow that stuff in us. Lord, we want to grow as you design for us to grow. We trust you to lead us in this time. Holy Spirit, be at work amongst us, we pray. Amen. So I'm going to share with you an illustration that I've borrowed from Mark Monell. And I don't know if you've ever been to a city centre or maybe you've been to the South Bank in London and you've seen the street artists. And maybe you've seen someone like this guy up here. The statues or entertainers that are floating and look kind of like they're levitating. Maybe you've been tempted to be a little bit more like the girl on the next slide. Like, having a closer look. Hang on a minute. How are you doing that? They draw us in when we see someone with a freedom to do something that we can't. They make us question, what's going on? Have they got some crazy power that I don't possess? Only the reality is that they're not really floating. They're not even just balancing. They've got a cleverly constructed outfit, concealing these strong, raised ledges. There's another slide that's got some little red lines on. Hopefully, you might get in a minute. So despite appearances, they are actually completely secure. They're certainly not in need of any of our help propping them up or fetching them a step to stand on. It would simply be unnecessary. And this is kind of what it's like in life with Jesus. Life with Jesus isn't a trick, but he is our great support, the one who makes all things possible. I'm looking at a lot of faces, looking at lines going, oh, I get you, that's how that one works. Um, in and of themselves, these performers can't levitate. They're humans, they're just like us. They don't have any special powers of their own. What enables them is the structure that they're resting all their weight upon. It's the thing that enables them to rest. It takes the strain, and they can just get on with enjoying it. New things are suddenly possible when the right structure is in place. And the wonderful thing about it not being about their ability and not being about our ability is that everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to hear this good news of Jesus and say, you know what, I could do that. I don't need a special skill. I can trust this structure this person that Jesus is strong enough to rest the weight of my life on. Isn't that good news? So for these performers and for us in Christ, there is total security, despite its appearance to others. But we do need to take it on trust, in faith, and decline the steps and the other things that other people might try and shove our way to prop us up. And this is this Jesus plus mentality that we've been looking at this season as we've been working our way through Colossians. Jesus is everything we need. A religion that tells us that what we need is Jesus, plus you just need to add on a little bit of this, or you could do a little bit of that, that's nothing. But a faith that says Jesus plus nothing is everything. 
cool tackles, some of these unnecessary additions, some of these false props that people might try to fling our way in the next bit of our passage. It draws attention to these dangers of kind of people lying to us, saying that maybe Jesus needs some topping up. And the first one that he pulls up is this. He says, there's a lie that says, there's Jesus plus behavior modification. Now, Colossae is a multicultural place. It's not particularly Jewish, which is why Paul doesn't use lots of Old Testament scriptures when he's writing this letter to them. Um, But what it does have is a bunch of people that have come to these new believers in Jesus and said, what you guys really need, like the Jesus bit is good, but what you really need is if you just add in circumcision and some food laws and obey the Sabbath and make sure you're feasting on the right days, then that is totally the way that you perfect your walk with God. And it might be for you that you're not from a particularly religious background. It might be in a really similar way you might feel that the church is full of people that tell you that you need to behave in a certain way or that are judging you on your behavior. Accidentally saying by that judgment that Jesus isn't enough to save you. What you need is Jesus plus a bunch of behavioral changes. And if that's been your experience of church, can I just apologize to you for that? Whether that's been here or somewhere else, it's not okay. We've done such a poor job of representing God's heart for you. Because the God that we worship says, come to me just as you are, you are welcomed. He says, you don't need to clean yourself up or act in a certain way for me to love you. I already love you completely, just as you are. God's heart is that we should reflect that as his people, as his church, back at everybody else that we encounter. So now being straight up, all of the things that Paul lists are found in scripture. They are all from the law, an agreement uh, called the old covenant that God made with Moses. So from verse 16, as Paul's saying, don't let people judge you on what you're eating and drinking, they might be thinking, well, hold up there, Paul. Leviticus 11 is pretty clear about this. For those of you that don't know Leviticus 11, uh, it holds such highlights as no eating camels, lizards, bats, and rats. You know what? I was really good with them without needing a commandment. But it does involve no eating bacon. No bacon butties. I'm sorry, that's what Moses had to say to us. Or it might be about these religious festivals that they're banging on about. And they're like, well, actually, Leviticus 23, it's really clear on that. The new moon thing, well, that's from numbers. You know, Moses' word is important. It might be going back to the Sabbath day. It's important to take a rest. Leviticus 23 again. There's so many rules. And they had very much been used to judge people. If you weren't following the rules, you're not really one of us. You're not in the in crowd. It depends on you and your capacity. And Paul suggests that actually none of that matters anymore. He says, don't let other people feel, make you feel like you should be insecure or lacking because you're not doing what they do. Paul says, you know, guys, if you want a contest at rule following, then bring it. I would beat you hands down. He said, I ticked all those boxes. In Philippians 3, it tells us, he said, concerning righteousness from the law, I was blameless. This is the same Paul that's gone on persecuting loads of Christians before he encountered Jesus for himself, because he really didn't like the way that they were uh, disposing of the law. 
But what he encountered was the risen Lord and realized that religion wasn't enough. Doing the right thing just didn't cut it. He says in verse 17 that these are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul's saying these laws, they were never meant to be permanent. They were designed to help us show our devotion to Christ until he came. But then he did come, and the terms and conditions changed. In fact, with all these food laws, they have well and truly passed their use-by date. Thankfully, Jesus sets us straight in Mark 7, and he says, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but their stomach, and then back out again. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he goes on to say, actually, it's not what you put into your body. It's the dross that spills out of your heart that makes you unclean. Is thinking about what we put in our bodies a good idea? Yeah. Is our salvation dependent on it? No. Is celebrating Easter and Christmas and all the things that God's done for us important? Yes, it's really important. Is our salvation dependent on it? No. Is taking time out to rest and invest in our relationship with God important? You bet it is. But is it a criterion in which we are being assessed for an eternity spent with God? No. If you're somebody who believes that Jesus has died on the cross for you, is your salvation secure even if you keep doing a bunch of stuff that scripture tells you isn't God's best for you? Yeah, absolutely. Because this is grace. But living like that is just going to rob us from a whole bunch of the fullness of life that God offers for us. He's got so much better than the way that we live for ourselves. And we're going to look at that in the coming weeks. But obeying rules isn't enough. Something far more radical was required. And that's why Jesus came for us. Because it's on his merit and not on ours. All that matters is that we receive what he did for us. Your security on Christ does not depend on your ability to be obedient to Old Testament laws or any modern-day equivalents we might come up with. Jesus breaks us free from that impossible burden. Our security in Christ is solely on what he has done for us rather than what we can do for him. So don't live in the shadows being judged by others or judging others. It's important to say here that there are so many things that can help us to be attentive to God and obedient to him, to help us to listen to him, to seek him, um, to, to ask him to bring breakthrough. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with seeking advice and trying out different things that might help you to draw nearer to him. The more we get to know God, the better we understand the sound of his voice. We recognize it. The more we seek to see where he is moving, the more we see where he is at work. But that's not about a slavish um, obedience to a set of rules. That's about an investment in our relationship with him. Because we prioritize the relationships that really matter to us. And those are the things that shape our behavior and they shape our choices. So what's 
Paul is arguing against is that he doesn't want us to impose a whole bunch of these things and a whole bunch of pressures on other believers, forcing them to think that it's about their ability to do something. He wants us to come with open arms to them as he comes with open arms to us so that you are loved just as you are by your creator. All we need is Jesus. Hold fast to him and you'll have absolutely everything you need. We can breathe a sigh of relief. But he moves on and says, it's not just that that they're kind of slamming you with. They're also throwing this angel stuff at you. Verse 18 says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. These false teachers are going around pretending that they're so humble and they're so good at being like putting themselves last, but what they're actually doing is showboating about all these experiences that they're having with angels, claiming that they're worshipping alongside them, arguing that if you're not joining in at the level that they're on, then you're missing out. And there's a clue here in this phrase of false humility. They're wowing these ordinary believers with all these particular details. But what they're actually doing is just making them feel like their experience with God is lackluster, that there's something that they're not quite doing right, that they don't feel like they've got that connection. And they're robbing them of that joy of intimacy in real worship. But what's actually happened is these puffed up false leaders are making it all about their feelings and making it about the experience and about hitting that spiritual high. And you've got to wonder whether actually what they've done is make it all about that and not about actual worship. This comparison can be so deadly. We know that God can be so generous in giving us times of radical encounter with him. But he often reveals himself in different ways, in different seasons, to different people. But we trust him to do that in the right ways for us, for our good. God doesn't have favorites. And a fixation on achieving the highs in worship and getting the warm fuzzies causes a really rapid decline into it not being worship at all. Whose benefit is it really for? Ours or God's? And Fillmore, in his brilliant commentary on this passage, says actually they went one step further and it became even more disturbing. They basically argued that now Jesus has gone back to heaven. You know, he's too distant to help you guys out now. I'm sorry. He's like way over there. What you really need is your own personal angel to be the little go-between between between you and Jesus. And we could think, they're just totally bonkers. None of us are, are doing that. What can we learn from that passage? But actually, how often do we perhaps go to a leader or our community groups or our life groups or another friend and we, we talk about all these things first and then we eventually, at the end of our evening, go, oh, we should probably pray about this and bring it to God. How often do we do that? How often do we put in these funny little go-betweens between us and God or think that somebody else's prayers might count more than ours do? What we really need is for him to be our go-between. And that's exactly what he promises us. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said, you are connected to the Father through me. You get direct access to God whenever you want it. 
more I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit and he'll lead you and he'll equip you and he'll reveal God to you. Jesus promises us that kind of closeness that somehow we're in him and he is in us. And it's not a status thing to lord over others. It's a free gift that we've received. And that's kind of just the problem for these guys that Paul's talking about them in it. Because as we hit verse 19, he says, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Decapitation is never going to lead to the body thriving. When describing Jesus earlier in Paul's letters, um, Paul's letter, he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Paul says this bunch, they've lost their head. He says it all starts and ends with Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no good news. Christ is the fullness of God and the focal point from creation right through to eternity. And they've made a grave and arrogant error, cladding this saving work of his with this nonsense and cutting him out in the process. Without Jesus as the head, we've got no support, we've got no structure, and growth isn't going to come. We're not going to become godly by following rules that are going to change us from the outside in, but by the power of Jesus that will transform us from the inside out. He gets hold of our hearts. He breaks us free from the stuff that's been trapping us and stopping us growing and thriving, and he transforms us. Getting rid of Jesus by putting anything else in his place is decapitating our spiritual life. And we're left running around like headless chickens, and there might be all kinds of signs of life, but really, we're in the final throes of death. It's a stern warning. His final point, verses 20 to 23, he says, Jesus plus self-denial and works doesn't cut it. So he says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why is there you still belong to the world? Do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So here we go again behavior modification part two. But this time, it's not the other things that people are imposing on us, but the things that we're choosing to impose on ourselves. We call it legalism, works-based salvation. It's the, I'm going to earn my way in. I like what Jesus says, but I'm going to top it up just to be sure. For them, it certainly seems to be marked with an awful lot of don'ts. Don't taste, don't touch. This misguided belief that if you really want to be spiritual, you have to look miserable all the time. Now, I don't know about you, but being told not to do something seems to really increase my desire to do it. It's that big red button with a do not uh, press sign next to it. 
And we actually literally had one of these on the ward. And I wish I'd kept a picture of it, but you can have this one, which I thought was quite funny instead. Because um, we had this massive red button and the sign next to it saying, do not press. Because it was the crash button, but what we were meant to do, if there's an emergency, phone crash switchboard, get yourself a crash team on the way over. Um, if you hit the button, you don't know that they're definitely coming. But it was there as the backup, so if you can't get through to switchboard, whack that, run back to your person, hopefully someone rocks up. Um, but all it meant was, <laughs> bring on the NHS. Um, so what it meant was that we just sat around at the desk with this big red juicy button there with do not press next to it going, I wonder if we did touch it, if anything would happen. Um, but why did we do it? We're awful, aren't we? We're our own worst enemies. Uh, but honestly, I think perhaps it's because Jesus is so counterculturally kind and welcoming actually it takes a really long time for that truth of our welcome to really sink in. The fact that we don't have to struggle in the hope that we might just scrape the balance in our favour feels really unnatural. We're raised on this diet of, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Question ulterior motives that the radical generosity from God really unnerves us. Surely there's got to be a catch. We want to prove that we've got something to offer. We've got something to give people, a reason that they might want to invest in us. And we treat God and eternity the same. We just keep going at trying to build up enough credit. And legalism, if we're honest, is hugely appealing. When life gets really confusing, we like to know where the lines are. And we like to know how to colour within them. We think it's going to save us this mess. And it might have a wise and a measured appearance, but it lacks value because it can't make us holy. All it actually does is just fill us with pride, thinking that we can make it on our own merit. In doing so, all we actually do is swap this harmful self-indulgence with maybe some of the other sinful things we've been doing before, with a similarly obsessive indulgence in religiosity. We're gonna fail. If we imagine that we can control our most sinful impulses by doing religious things rather than turning to Jesus, Paul is really clear. It's not gonna work. Other people might give us their respect, but they're not gonna see what condition our heart's in. Without exclusive and total dependence on God, and what Christ has accomplished for us. Religion is completely useless. Now, Paul is going to follow this up in chapter 3, so we're going to be looking at this later. Um, but for now, I just really want us to accept that legalism and grace are incompatible. Legalism is useless at bringing us that lasting change and transformation. Even when these rules find their basis in Scripture, the legalism is just going to twist it into something toxic. It makes it just human commands. The irony is that it's actually just really worldly to be religious. We should live in freedom and security, but that's hard because that legalism mindset runs deep in us. It's ingrained in our thinking, but it's not God's best for us, and he has another option. So what does that look like in practice. Perhaps we need to resist imposing ideas of divine disappointment or spiritual jeopardy on ourselves. 
feeling like we've got to adhere to rules for fear of what God might do, actually just shows our lack of trust and understanding of his character. God's love for you does not depend on your performance. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. It depends on him loving you enough to die for you, which is already a done deal. So we get to kill off this old way of life and ask, us, ask God to give us a new way of life in all of its fullness. This God who is making all things new starts with us. And the wonder of the gospel is that it includes being freed from these old mindsets and getting to live with a freedom in new life. When we have the Holy Spirit, we get to go from being led by our emotions and our fears into being led by the things of God and what he desires. We're free to choose God, to grow in our desire for him and in his ways, growing as God causes us to grow. So one day, God will flood this present creation with life. Jesus will come again, and the whole cosmos will be transformed. And it's hard learning to live and believe that when at the moment it doesn't feel that real to us. But that's part of this faith walk that we're on. So we've heard Paul's advice. He says, stop making it about Jesus plus the stuff that people are judging you on or telling you to do. Stop making it about Jesus plus next level religious experience or finding somebody else as your go-between. Maybe most importantly for some of us, stop making it about Jesus plus your top-up effort. It's quite frankly a bit insulting. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Will we put the weight of our life on him? So we've left a bit of time this morning for us to respond and ask the Holy Spirit just to lead us in this. Because we know that he loves us, that he is for us. And we're not going to dictate how you need to do that. We might have some songs. You can join in with them. You don't have to. You might want to pray just quietly by yourself or just sit and reflect on some of this stuff. You might want to pray with others. That's absolutely fine. I'm going to pray for all of us that the Lord will just lead us in this time. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you, you're at work in us. That when we open up our lives to you, and when we ask you to come and fill us, you reveal things about the Father to us. You reveal more about Jesus to us. You reveal a whole bunch of stuff about who we are who you want to make us. Lord, I thank you that we get to come before you exactly as we are, knowing that you know us inside and out. You know us completely. And we are welcomed by you. Lord, I thank you that you love us exactly as we are. But I also know <clears throat> that you love us too much to leave us exactly as we are. And sometimes, Holy Spirit, you just need to come and you need to breathe life to us. And you need to point out the stuff that we're doing that's just hurting us or it's hurting others. And not because that stuff is going to earn our salvation. But because that stuff's just not great and you've got a better option for us. That's why I pray, Holy Spirit, would you be convicting our hearts of how deeply loved we are by you? 
if we've been wounded by the church or by others speaking stuff over to us about stuff that we need to change to be accepted. Lord, I pray that you break the power of those things, that we would see that we are accepted by you exactly as we are today. And Lord, if our hearts have been running after other stuff, if we've looked to, to top up life with Jesus with other things, Lord, highlight those things to our hearts. Bring us back in repentance to you, that you would be the sole focus of our souls, the sole focus of our worship. Lord, we, can't, we long to come directly to you. We thank you that you made a way for that to be possible. And Father, finally, you know all the, all the gunk in our hearts, all the things that we try and structure around, all the ways that we try and work and strive and prove ourselves, the, our battles with pride, our battles with self-worth. You, you know all that stuff completely. Pray, breathe life there, Lord, that we would know that we are completely secure in you, completely secured, not because of anything that we can ever do, but because of what you have already done for us. I pray for boldness in this room to grab hold of that afresh, maybe for the first time, maybe for the gazillionth time, that you are good news for us, that you are the strong, stable, secure structure that we are right to put all of our weight on. Pray, Holy Spirit, move amongst us in this time. We trust that you will be at work, just gently transforming us and growing us and leading us to love you and to love others more. We pray, give us ears to hear you, hearts ready to respond. In the wonderful name of your son, Jesus.